Your life can be full of inspiration and magic, and you don't need glass slippers to get there. Welcome to the podcast for real life heroines with author, speaker, and coach, Susanna Liller. Join us as we work with key elements of personal development to assist you in hearing the calls that life has for you. Be inspired, be empowered, and be encouraged. Let's start today's episode with your host, Susanna Liller. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me on my podcast for Real Life Heroines. And I am really pleased to have Shirley Hager as my guest this time for this episode. Shirley, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Shirley is an author. We're going to hear about her book that she published this year called The Gathering. But if you've been listening to these podcasts, you'll know that what they're about is telling the story of the heroine and the heroine's journey. So uh, as much as we will talk about Shirley's book, which we will, we want to hear about her journey in, well, we're going to have to get into it because something came before her actual writing of the book. And um, let me also just say that Shirley has a background in facilitation and she was part of the Center for Vision and Policy, Center for Vision and Policy. Right. Which can you just say a few words about what that was? Because I think that was the starting point maybe for this work. It was the starting point for this specific work. Yes. Um, Back in the 1980s, Uh, there was an organization based in Maine called the Center for Vision and Policy. And it was a peace and justice organization, you might say, but it had this particular focus where it wanted to bring together thinking of um, social, economic, and environmental justice. And to sort of interweave those themes in order to create a vision for how we could all live sustainably. Mm-hmm. Not only in Maine, but in the Gulf of Maine bioregion. And, and you were coordinator for that group. Uh, I was not the coordinator for the whole organization, but I became the coordinator for the gatherings that brought together uh, Wabanaki and non-Native people. Which is, is the, the subject whole subject of, of your book. Yes. Right. But right. just a little more context around you and your background, you grew up in the South in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And say a bit about how that, um, your upbringing there affected you as a person and the work that you chose to do. Well, um, yes, I grew up in North Carolina in the 50s and 60s. So that means I grew up during segregation. And um, I would say that it's a pretty confusing um, way to grow up. Um, I'm sure whether you're um, white or black in that situation, um, because things don't make sense is kind of how I think about it. I just remember being so confused by the things that I would see and the things that would um, be said by people in my life who were 
loving people. They were kind to me. But then they would say these things about other people that just, you know, you, you couldn't make sense of it. And I um, remember, you know, one of the things that I, I tell in the book is that um, just like every other child in that era, I, I watched Westerns. And um, the thing that I remember is that I never somehow absorbed the message that the quote Indians in the Westerns were, um, were the enemy. Uh, you know, I was always fascinated by them and how they lived. And I, I wanted to live the way that they lived. And I remember this time, I must have been about eight years old and I came home from school and I remember something must have happened during the day that really bothered me and that I had seen um, a black person or maybe a child treated badly. And I was asking my dad and I remember asking him why, why was that person treated this way? And my father was a very compassionate man and he had had um, a bit more worldly experience, like he had, he grew up in Missouri, he uh, joined the military, and then he, he finished college on the GI Bill, and uh, he was stationed in Colorado for a while, and so what he said to me was, well, you know, I think, um, I think some people treat other people that way to make themselves feel big, and he said, when I was stationed out west, they treated the Indians just the way they treat, he would have said colored people back then, just the way that, that we treat colored people here. Right. And I just remember this like light bulb. It was like, well, then suddenly it, it all seemed wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I just remember feeling like, well, if they can treat Indians that way, um, also then nothing, this doesn't make sense to me. I remember you saying to me when we talked earlier that it just didn't feel right in you. And, and even though you were young, as you continued to move forward in your career and you know, you would have this, you had this value system that you just knew what was right. And so then that brought you to this social justice group and also you're a Quaker mm -hmm. and also you were a part of the Center for Courage and Renewal and did work there. So this kind of all laid the groundwork. So I'm getting ready to ask you, Shirley, what, what call did you have? Um, and explain what that was, what that then, you know, for everyone, the call is what takes us on our heroine's journey if we accept the call. And so what came to you? Well, I would say that, you know, I, as I said, I had had this lifelong, um, although romantic, um, um, curiosity, interest in indigenous peoples and cultures. And I, I went to graduate school out in Utah. I was aware that there was a strong 
uh, Native presence out there, but I, I never met any students on campus. Um, you know, I, I just never had that kind of opportunity, although I thought about it. And so then when I moved to Maine, and um, I became involved in a Quaker um, organization in Southern Maine that um, sort of led me to hearing about the Center for Vision and Policy. And so I just decided to meet the founder of the center one morning for breakfast to sort of see what they were up to. And so the founder, Ellie Haney, was telling me about this vision, you know, that they were trying to construct of sustainability. And but they had this idea that was pretty unique at the time. And that was that they wanted to make sure that they had the voice of the indigenous people who had lived in this area, in this region, in this territory for millennia. They wanted to include their voice in this vision. And I was immediately hooked, as you might imagine, because this is what I'd been interested in right. so long. And so I wanted to know how I could be involved. And I um, had in my very purse at the time, I had this brochure um, advertising a New England-wide gathering of Quakers that I was planning to go to in a few weeks. And there was a man there who was going to be giving a talk on native spirituality. And he had been invited by the Quakers because he was Wampanoag and, and you know, the, they were holding the meeting in Massachusetts that year. And so I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go and I'll talk to this person. And Ellie, had, they had some ideas about how they might approach this. So, um, so that's what happened. I was just drawn to investigate this. I went to um, the presentation by this, by this man whose name I couldn't pronounce at the time, but his name was Gisatanamuk. And he did three afternoons of speaking about his world, his people's worldview and so on. And so in that time period, I went up to him and I talked to him about the Center for Vision and Policy. And he was very intrigued because he said that he hadn't, you know, we said that we were interested in learning from the people of the land. And he said he had never heard white people use that term before. Well, so that's, that's exactly how he thought of himself. And that's something. And, and this is, would be 1986. Um, that would have been 1986 that I met him. And, I, and he's in your book. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, meaning he's part of this group, which you're going to tell us about. But wasn't he, he was young, like in his 20s or something? Oh, uh, well, we were, <laughs> we were both, he was more we were young. We were, we were young, but it, we were in our 40s. <laughs> we were all young, yes. We were all young then. Um, and um, yes, in fact, it's so, it's, it's great because um, he had been studying with his elders. He had had a return to seeking out his own traditions. And he had moved back to his home community in Mashpee and um, had been studying with his elders. And so when the Quakers were going to have that yearly gathering, they contacted uh, his Wampanoag community, some of the elders there. And his elders said, well, we think it's time for you to go out wow. and 
speak. And so it was his first public speaking engagement. He was there with his partner, Migamahan, with their first child, who was two at the time. And uh, she was playing around in the back of the room with her mom while, while he was speaking. And so, um, yeah, what happened was I told him about this. He was willing to give me some names of people that we might uh, contact here in Maine and, and in the Maritimes. And he also took it upon himself to correspond with me throughout the next year, really trying to educate me. I was so naive. I was so uneducated. You know, I just was going on pure instinct and interest. And um, he really took the time to educate me. And so we began to think about how to move this a step further. And so the idea arose to have um, not really a gathering, we might've called it that, but it was more of an educational forum where we invited, Wabanaki is the term that is used to refer to all of the tribes in Maine and, and the Maritimes. But I'm glad you explained that because yes. not everybody listening would be from Maine. And Right, there are four federally recognized tribes in Maine, um, Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Micmac, and Maliseet, and uh, also the Abnaki, but they don't have a, um, they're not federally recognized in Maine. Um, but they are all, com all comprised the Wabanaki. And so we had invited several Wabanaki speakers to speak, to educate us, basically us non-natives, and um, to talk about not only our history uh, together, but um, their current issues in their lives. And so we did this, it was pretty successful. We did it again the following year, but at the end of that second session, some of the Wabanaki participants came up to me as I, I was the court. That's what I was the coordinator of was this right. event. Right. And they said, we think this has promise, but we, if we're going to stay involved, we would like to suggest that we meet a different way. They said, we feel awkward being up there talking to you people, the audience down there, we would like to suggest that we meet in a more traditional way that we, we would be comfortable with. And so they invited us to meet in a traditional council circle and with, with a talking stick and that they would create, a, create it in a ceremonial way. So they would surround our meeting with ceremony to aid us in our in our discussions. Shirley, what does that mean? I mean, what would that look like, that ceremony? Um, and I want to be really clear that this was at their invitation and they had complete responsibility for it. We were would be invited guests just as you might invite someone to your church. Mm -hmm. And they would be expected to come with, with respect and, and interest, but um, not there to, to take on what they saw there. Right. So they were completely in charge of that. And they said, you're in charge of getting the people here and finding the place. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, that, so what we did was um, 
Gisatanamuk and others would arrive the night before and they would start a fire, a sacred fire for us that would stay lit throughout the weekend. We would um, get up to a uh, first light ceremony and first light in May is extremely early. Uh, we began to, by the way, we began to meet twice a year, May and September. And these were long four day weekends. So we would arrive <clears throat> on a Thursday, the fire would already be lit. Uh, we would um, gather at first light for a ceremony uh, around the fire where we would offer our prayers for the day. We would break for breakfast and then we would come back and we would sit in a council circle for the rest of the morning. We would break for lunch. We would come back in the afternoon. We cooked together. We, we all brought food. We camped out. Um, we hung out in the evenings. It was just an astonishing experience for uh, many of us. And what would happen in those circles? There was no agenda. Um, Usually Gisatanamuk would stand up and sort of talk about the protocol of the circle, how that we were speaking our, what was uppermost in our hearts and minds into the center of the circle, not to um, discuss or debate with someone else in the circle, um, but to simply speak from our hearts. And when we were done, we would pass pass the stick and it would go around and it would go around again and you could pass and then you could speak some people didn't speak for years <laughs> wow. wow and there as I'm remembering from the book there were seven indigenous people and seven white people is that in the book so we would have on a weekend typical weekend we would have maybe anywhere from 25 to 30 people oh okay and over the years you know people would come and go it wasn't always the same people but there was a core group of us mm -hmm. who came almost every time we had 11 of these in all over a six and a half year period wow and so it was a lot of time spent together and in between we began to visit in each other's homes or help out with projects or some of us created projects together that still exist. Um, so um, yeah, we people would come and go of course, but there was a core group of about 15 to 20. And so those of us who stayed in touch over the years because the gatherings ended in 1993 um, but many of us stayed in touch. And so around 2008, we started talking about, some of us started talking about doing a book together. About, before you go there. Before, I won't, right. Okay. okay. So it seems to me like it's just your passion and your interest that drew you into doing this work. And the fact that you had a partner, and I won't even try to say his name and I, uh -huh. yeah, the spelling is is extraordinary for us English speakers but um it didn't seem you know I always ask heroines you went on this incredible journey into the unknown you had never done this before was there any trepidation or or did it just sort of work 
beautifully the way you went about it? Both. Um, yes, there was much trepidation. Um, you know, it was, you know, I, I, there was something about the way we came together, the commitment that we made to each other by simply showing up <clears throat> for one thing, because people came from Cape Cod to Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hmm. People traveled hours and hours to come to, to these gatherings, which we tried to hold as close to the indigenous communities as possible, um, just out of consideration for their time and travel. Um, so people traveled long distances, made the commitment of these long weekends. And it was, and then this coming together to sort of say our prayers for the day in the morning and to be held in that circle during the day, there was that that was holding us. And even more than that, I think, it was the vulnerability and the risk-taking that happened around that fire that, um, you know, that people stayed. I mean, after a while and we got comfortable with one another, people began to feel safe to express their anger, hmm. their hurt, um, the the non you know the indigenous people particularly the the non-native people began to feel safe to express the ways that we felt alienated from the land from our families hmm. um what we all collectively felt was happening to the earth i mean it just it was like weaving yeah. together this fabric that got stronger and stronger right so, so all I can say is that, and I say this in the book, that there were times that I felt that there was a wound being healed that I didn't know was there, mm. a wound between our peoples, oh. that we could be so honest and open with each other that it felt, you know, that I didn't know was there until I felt it healing. And I think so many of us, felt that, mm. um, that it kept us coming back. We really wanted to feel that. And so when you feel that kind of rightness, you start to feel like um, you, you just have to keep at this, even though it was difficult. I mean, right. the, and planning, the planning, the, the commitment, um, there were times in the circle that I thought, when I would go to bed at night in my tent, that I would be afraid when I woke up, everyone would have packed up and gone <laughs> home because there was anger expressed there, you know, people, you know, somebody would say something and someone would get triggered. And, but the important thing was none of us left. Wow. We just kept staying and you created that container, that sacred container to do. This. I did, but the circle I did. Yes, everyone. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. To do sacred work. So, all right, then let me let you talk about the book and how that. So, there you were having had this 
sounds to me like a mountaintop experience, what was created by all of you. And then you said, and so to me, this is your next heroine's journey that you were called. Say more about how the book got going. I will. Okay. <clears throat> there was something I wanted to say before we left the gatherings. Yes. And that is that I think it's important for people to hear that you don't need to meet as we did for this kind of thing to happen. That I think we were greatly supported um, by what the Wabanaki people offered us, but you don't need to be in a traditional um, Wabanaki or indigenous circle. You can create that sort of bonding anywhere among peoples, I believe. And so I, I don't wanna give the impression that that's the only way it can happen. But in terms of our groups with our tragic history coming together, it seemed very important that we meet in a way that the Wabanaki people suggested. And that was, that was what we, that's what they offered to us and we offered to let go of any um, preconceived notions we had about how you get together. Right. And I think that was part of the magic. I'm glad you clarified that because in my mind, as a former facilitator who had, has worked with groups in conflict and who needed to work to understand each other, I was thinking, oh, if all of those groups could have met in that way, but I hear you that, you know, it would stop people from meeting if they thought it had to be that way every time. And what's most important is to find a way to gather. Is the intention, I think, and the commitment to stay with it. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we wrote the book is we, we hope that people could lift some of the principles mm -hmm. and apply it in other situations. Right. Definitely. So... So how did, how did this so the book come about? <laughs> um, well, first of all, let me say that I do not ever say it's my book. Right. That I always say it's our book. Right. And, and right? Yes, yes. Right there. Yeah. Yes. And I'll tell, I'll tell the story of how we came up with the, with the name and the cover. Um, but um, as I said, many of us stayed in touch over the years, and the gatherings ended in 93, but in 2000, around 2008, um, my friend Francis, who is from New Zealand and was lived here during the time of the gatherings and was very much a part of them, she came back for a visit. And we, I was driving from New Zealand and I was driving her around Maine and New Brunswick and we were visiting old friends from the gatherings. And we talked and as we met with people, we, we sort of, I, you know, I had said to her that ever since the gatherings ended, I had had this image, this idea that someone needed to write a book about this experience that we had learned so much from each other. But I was really clear, it wasn't me. Because I just, I had, I could imagine the work involved. I, it just felt like a mountain 
to climb. And you were teaching, right? At the I time. was work. Yes, I was working for the university at the time. And so that was that was another thing. I just felt it was impossible. However, I retired in 2008. So you had uh, nothing to do. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> but still, it felt like way too much to take on. And my friend Frances happens to be a writer. And she also does her writing primarily with uh, Maori and Pacific Islander populations in New Zealand. And that's what she does. And she said, um, oh, well, um, I'll come back. I'll come back and I'll spend a couple of weeks and we'll interview people and we'll, I'll write the book. I said, great. And you know, it's so funny because all during that period from 93 to 2008, I told you I'd already had always had this image. I even at one point, I had a box in my basement of all of the archives from the gatherings, all of the invitations and notes and, and recordings and all kinds of things. And there was even one woman who ultimately becomes part of the book um, who had, um, I was talking with her one day and she said she had been working on a history of the um, institution where she was working. I said, oh, great, Would, why don't you <laughs> write a, a history? Why don't you write about the gathering? She said, okay. So I just remember this night that she drove to my house from Biddeford to my house in Portland. And I put this box of stuff in her back seat and off she drove and then hilariously, like a few years later, she's visiting me again and she brings the box back. The <laughs> so box was too much, too much. The box was too much. And I know, and I know why. And so anyway, so when Francis made this offer, I said, oh, this is great. And because I just knew this needed to happen. So she, we, we and I started talking to people. We, several of us wound up in an event up at the University of Maine in Orono. We talked about it. People started getting excited about this. And Frances um, writes a lot of grants in her work. So she and I uh, wrote some grants together. I got money together for our first reunion of, um, we identified 10 people who had said they'd like to be part of this. And it was always critical that it be an even number of Wabanaki and non-native people doing the book. And so we had 10 people lined up for this reunion gathering. Francis was going to fly from New Zealand. Right. And a, we'd raised all this money. And a week or two before, she calls me and says, I'm having emergency eye surgery. And my physician says, I'm not flying anywhere for at least a year. And we were so far down the road and I consulted with people and they said, oh, we're not stopping now. And so it just became obvious that this was going to be my work to do. And what was the feeling at that point? Because you had tried, and in the journey, we call it refusal of the call. It was refusal. You were, re you can do it, you can do it. And now it's like, oh no. So how did you feel at that point that I've got to shoulder this? It was um, frightening. 
It was frightening. Um, you know, it's like you see the writing on the wall and you don't want to read it because suddenly in my life, I'm, I'm suddenly retired. This is the year that I retired. Wow. Um, sudden, you know, I, I was the coordinator of the gatherings. I was the one who lived here. I know everybody in the, you know, it, it just made sense. Were you a writer? Had you written a book? I had never, oh yeah, that's a great, <laughs> well, I had written in my profession, of right, course, right. but, you know, more technical writing, um, papers, and, you know, I had never taken on anything like this, um, plus people, you know, as I said, we lived hours from, from one another, but people said, we are in this, and you can do it, and we will be behind you. And we created um, a planning group of um, <clears throat> Gisatanamuk, his partner, Migamahan, Wayne Newell, who is a Passamaquoddy elder, and Francis and myself. So um, we had our first reunion gathering at Wayne's home. And um, it was, just amazing. And we, um, so we talked about the book. Um, we made plans for interviews. We talked about four others that we would like to be in the book with us. So we checked in with them. So we wound up with 14 plus Francis who had agreed to from afar be, be a supporter and guide and mentor. She certainly was to me yeah. um, faithful, faithfully. And um, so raised more money and I embarked on doing the interviews. Right, and really then two weeks later, just the way Francis had said, you have wrote the book. Oh, uh, two weeks, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Didn't she say, I'll in, in two weeks, we'll write it, is that no, true? No, she said, I'll come and we'll do the interviews in two oh. weeks. Okay, but still, it's when I think about, because um, it was just, it was a really long process, you know, traveling, uh, and, and I want to say also, really importantly, um, as I said, I wanted more than anything for it to be our book, and we all wanted that, and there's such a, there's such a history of non-Native people, um, collecting the stories of um, indigenous culture, um, spirituality, life ways, and benefiting from it in some way, going off and getting a degree or selling a book and nothing comes back. And we didn't want that, I didn't want that. And I just said, you know, the most important thing is that we finish together and people feel as if it's our book. And so it was really important that um, these interviews, I would come back and transcribe them. I would send them back to people and they had full authority over their words. They could subtract, add whatever they wanted. Then when I, <clears throat> there was a process of crafting a, you know, a, a story from the interview. And then I would send that first draft back to them and get their approval for that. And so that process 
um, took a couple of years and then, um, well, let me say first, the process of gathering the stories going back and forth. And once I had all of those, then we met again and we talked about the, um, the structure of the book. You know, so we, we together talked about what are the themes that are emerging? What are the lessons we feel we learned? And so people had input into what the book would look like. Then I went off and it took about three years to write the book wow. because again, it was going back and forth. Right. Um, Wayne and Gisatanamuk and Migamahan particularly sort of uh, acted as cultural advisors. So if I had questions about what something meant or uh, I tried very hard to, you know, to only speak for myself or the non-native people in the book. And when it was something attributed to the Wabanaki participants to make sure that, that they had said that themselves, that I wasn't you know, making up, you know, attributing things. And so you said you were gonna tell us how the cover came to be. Yes, yes. The story that goes with that. Yeah, um, so um, it takes a little while to get a publisher. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> that's another whole story. But um, to our great delight, the University of Toronto Press um, got in interested in our book. And they have told us, they have a huge indigenous studies um, department in their publishing company. And they told us that they felt this book was unique that they didn't have anything that was first person stories about what it's like, you know, the nitty gritty um, of being in relationship, the little things, the big things, um, the awkwardness, <laughs> the joy, the uncertainty, the, you know, of, of trying to understand one another. Yeah. And so, they really loved it. Um, and so we were very grateful for that. And they were very sensitive um, to our wishes and desires and um, fully engaged our, our planning group uh, with the cover. And so um, we love the cover. Uh, I remember saying we met with their marketing team and uh, I remember saying, well, the colors in our part of the world are green and blue. You know, it's trees and, and water. water. And so they, they created an image of, a, of interlapping, but separate circles mm -hmm. in those colors, which we love. And then we said, and everyone's name has to be on the cover. <laughs> and they said, oh, really? <laughs> uh, we said, yes, yes, they all have to be on the cover. And they said, okay. And so they sent us back a mock-up of the cover and they had everyone's name on it. And we said, that looks terrible. <laughs> right. Too big, too right. much. And they said, so, well, can you, could you come up with a name for the group? Something that shows visually that this is a collaborative effort. So the cover has my name and Melbiane. And the coming up with the name for the group is, 
it's a wonderful story because um, I certainly couldn't do that. And so I call we several of our Wabanaki um, co-authors are native speakers. In other words, they they grew up with their language as their first language. And so um, Migamahan and Wayne, both in our planning group, uh, are native speakers. And so I happened to be able to get both of them on the phone at the same time, which was a minor miracle. They're busy people. And um, I got to, I told them the dilemma and I got to just sit on this phone call and listen to the two of them discuss what the name should be. And it was just a moment I wish I had recorded. Yeah. Because um, Wayne is Passamaquoddy, Migamahan is Migamah. And they talked about what the circle was, what we had done, and then how they could come up with a word that would be recognizable in all four Wabanaki languages and with enough, you know, with enough of a root that people would recognize. And so Wayne made a suggestion and it's the very, very first short paragraph in the preface. So if I could just read this. Yes, please do. This is what he told us on that phone call. Mobiane in Passamaquoddy literally means let us sit together. But the deeper meaning is of a group coming together as in the longhouse to struggle with a sensitive or divisive issue. The word indicates an urgency to meet because the outcome is something very desirable, such, such as resolving a conflict or bringing about peace. It's a healing word. Wow. And let me just, so it's this word and you pronounce it for us again. Melbiane. Yeah. Yeah. As, wow. That is the best of my ability. Wayne coaches me every time I say it. <laughs> it's beautiful. And so, so what I want to ask you now, Shirley, is, well, so just congratulations. What a, for all of you, this, the effort, the time, energy that was spent, it's just beautiful to hear about it. Back to your journey, and, and maybe this is hard to encapsulate, but I think you could find something that you could read in the book. I always ask women, well, what, what's the gift you receive from this journey? What, how did it enrich your life? You know, that's, we go on the journey to learn, to change, to evolve. What happened for you? Then don't you have a piece that you could read? Uh, yeah, um, I can. Um, it's, there, there are many gifts. There are many gifts to this. And I would say um, one of the biggest gifts is that I feel we're all still in relationship. Yeah. That I got an experience of doing this collaboratively with this group of people. And um, we've lost five people. I know, I know yeah. you have, yes. Yeah. And one, um, Debbie Layton, very dear to my mm -hmm. heart, a friend of mine. And I want to just say out loud, I'd like to dedicate this particular 
podcast to Debbie Layton, who yeah, passed away you. this year. Yes, that's lovely. We yeah. all miss her. Mm. Yeah. So the fact and those relationships, the fact that those relationships grew stronger through the creation of this book. And I'm getting to do presentations with people from the book, which has been just wonderful. Um, and so that is one big gift. Um, yeah. But at the end of my personal story in the book, <clears throat> I write, being in relationship with native people means that you will inevitably be drawn into the political dimension of their world and must choose whether to take on a particular cause as your own. One aspect of white privilege is having the choice of whether to become involved, whereas in most cases they do not. But I came to understand over time that their issues are my issues. And not only because of my love for specific individuals, our social and economic policies have made native communities most vulnerable, <clears throat> but they are simply the canary in the coal mine, perhaps especially when it comes to environmental concerns. What is impacting their communities will soon impact all of us. My experience in the gatherings changed the way I look at everything. News events, historical accounts, politicians' promises, scientific claims, I could go on. Everywhere, I see the absence of the indigenous perspective, the lack of which means we are all poorer, even in peril. Huh. But the dominant culture knows and values even our ways of knowing seem clearly deficient in terms of sustaining our life here on this planet. We need the indigenous perspective, but that perspective has to be honorably earned and freely given. Wow, that's beautiful. And, and just think about how it happened. You went to that conference, you were inspired, you just began reaching out, meeting people, and look at what unfolded as a result. It's so, it's inspiring for sure. And so I'm wondering, Shirley, there are people listening to this who are perhaps feeling a call to do something similar or to broaden their world in some way like you did. And what would you, they're hesitating, they're right there. <laughs> threshold thinking, oh, I don't know, remember what you said, you know, well, talking about the book, I'm not a writer, I, you do it, not me. They're, they might be doing the same thing. Well, how would you encourage them? Well, you know, I would, I guess I would say to them, imagine not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was what that was what I, you know, it might not be, <laughs> it might not be the most exciting way to approach this, but I, you know, true to truly sit and imagine not doing this, not bringing whatever it is right. into the world. And that's what I had to do. I had to sit with that and say, if I don't do this, this, our whole experience um, 
I used to have this little quote in my desk drawer. So when I had a desk drawer, so when I pulled it out, it was taped inside and it was a quote from Elie Wiesel. Mm -hmm. And it was not to transmit an experience is to betray it. Wow. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think that's it. It's like when I thought about not writing this book or it not getting written, I just couldn't bear it. And so I had to do it. <laughs> How could you not? Right. <laughs> Well, that is wonderful. And so everyone, I would encourage you, and we're going to be putting this as part of Shirley's information when we send out this video, um, how to get the book, which you can get University of Toronto Press and on Amazon and more local particular stores have all your local bookstores right. will be able to get it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's the website that I would encourage everybody to look at because you'll get so much more information is thegatheringsbook.com. So, and then we can also find you on Facebook and on Instagram, but again, I'll put all that in the information, but I just love this story and I love what you've done and um, just kudos to you, kudos to all of you that that accomplished this great wonderful conversation yeah so thank, thank you. you for being with me today my pleasure my pleasure mine too okay <laughs> and the rest of you if you would please make sure that you continue to watch we'll have another podcast coming up soon so thank you all for being with Shirley and with me today Thank you for listening to the podcast for Real Life Heroines with Susanna Liller. We're so glad you've joined us and would love to connect with you outside of the show. To find more about Susanna and how she can assist you in your heroine story, go to SusannaLiller.com forward slash blog or find us on social media and YouTube by searching Susanna Liller. You can also email us directly at Susanna at SusannaLiller.com. We'd love to hear from you. To be encouraged and inspired outside of the show and blog, check out You Are Heroine, a retelling of the hero's journey written by your host and coach, Susanna, available on Amazon. Until the next time, be well, heroine.